Welcome to the Critical Witness podcast, where we talk faith, apologetics, evangelism, and anything else we can think of. We hope you enjoy the show. Good evening. Welcome to Critical Witness, uh, here where we talk about ethics, philosophy, Christianity, apologetics, and anything else that comes up in the conversation. Uh, we've got Gareth Black from Solas, uh, who, if you've been watching us for a little while, we had Andy Bannister a little while ago who had the Solas logo in his window, but Gareth has let the team down a little bit, hasn't got the Solas logo on his background at all, so I'm, I'm a bit disappointed with that, Gareth, to say the least, but... Welcome on our show. We'll start on a downer. It can only go up from here. And um, we're going to see how where this conversation goes. We've advertised it as bioethics uh, because that's an interest of Gareth's, but we'll also discuss anything and everything else that comes up from um, when you tell us a bit more about yourself. So um, we've only just met but we're already interacting with uh, some of the stuff that you've been saying before we went live. And um, yeah, if you could just share a bit about yourself, your journey as a Christian, uh, where you're based, what you do, and a little bit about where you're heading, because I think that will lead into uh, some more of our conversations. So over to you, Gareth. Yeah, well, thanks, guys. It's uh, really good to be with you and uh, have watched some of the previous episodes of, of Critical Witness. So I'm just here to bring sort of the level uh, down to, you, you know, a, a normal sure. sort of average here. It's been very high standards so far. <laughs> um, Andy Kine uh, will be uh, like that. <laughs> Um, you'll you'll know, I guess, already from my accent. Um, I, I was born in Northern Ireland, grew up um, in Belfast, and uh, really towards the sort of final decade of what became known as as the Trouble. So, for those who who, who are tuning in who don't know what that is, it was largely a, a period of thirty years of sectarian violence and conflict um, that that ravaged our, our country um, and took the lives of over three and a half thousand people. Um, my parents experienced it much more than me, but um, but I grew up sort of towards the end of that, felt the effects. My own primary school was closed for a few days when I was there because um, somebody planted a car bomb in an adjacent hotel car park. Um, so you know, not your not your average childhood, but those experiences thankfully were were few and far between. But I did grow up in a very divided and sectarian. Um, nation and, and culture and a lot of that was in reality um sort of separated along political lines but it was also framed very much in terms of a, a religious um division and this um, in fact i think richard dawkins says that uh, we wouldn't have had the northern ireland troubles had it not been for god and for religion i think that's on page one of the dawkins delusion so at least we got a mention anyway um but beyond that sort of broader context, I grew up in a, in a Christian family. Um, my parents were, weren't from Christian families themselves, but they'd become Christians before I was born. Um, and I um, grew up in a very loving, very stable, secure Christian family, was brought along to all of the usual events for um, Christian young people um, in the church. 
Um, obviously, didn't take too long to realize that that wasn't normal. And a lot of my friends and their parents weren't Christians. And I sort of moved away from faith for, for quite a long time and then um, came back after being on a, a youth weekend with quite a, um, a very clear and profound encounter with God. Um, and that essentially changed my life. I know it's a cliche, but um, it really did. A lot of my desires after that point changed. I developed a real passion for scripture, even as, as a 17-year-old. Um, but I did struggle to know how to um, translate what was um, a, a real and a very passionate faith into sort of the context and the sixth form center um, and into the rugby environment that I had sort of uh, found myself in, in in school and things like that. So I largely just separated the two. Um, and after school, I moved to London and um, was, was sensing a real call to be involved in sharing the Christian faith. So I, I got the opportunity to take a gap year in Southeast London at a very um, old and sort of dying church in, in Woolwich and got the opportunity to work with some guys there in, in um, developing that and just getting sort of experience in Christian ministry which was brilliant, brilliant opportunity for me as a 19-year-old. Um, eventually came back to Northern Ireland, did a theology degree. That led to um, getting involved with students and, and young people at a church in the north part of the city, which was actually um, led by John Lennox's brother. Um, oh, cool. So that sort of built the connection there, um, got to know um, Gilbert, John's brother, and then John himself. And that eventually led to me going over to Oxford to um, study at a centre that John's involved with, the OCA, um, Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics. And alongside that, I did a, a master's in theology at the university. And it was there that I discovered um, Christian ethics and um, got really involved in, and interested in that. And some of the work that I did on that was went quite well. And it just sort of fueled the passion for some of these bigger questions around what it means to be human. Um, and so I decided after I, I got invited to work with RZM for a number of years as a speaker. Um, and alongside that then, um, they also gave me the opportunity to go down to King's College in London and do a, a, a master's in bioethics. And I chose that specifically because I wanted to sort of immerse myself outside of the theological bubble and, and really encounter and swim in pools where um, none of the theology and none of these presuppositions were allowed to be on the table. Um, and, and really I was being exposed to the most extreme ends of um, some of these practical ethical arguments, which was brilliant. Again, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, it's a really good program. And that's led now to sort of doctoral studies again back in, in Oxford in, in similar um, similar disciplines. So yeah, that's the whirlwind tour. This is my life. <laughs> I really appreciate that. That's good. Um and before we get into some of the stuff we've we've advertised, it'd be interesting to see sort of a little bit of the the background. I mean how how much of the growing up in in that environment, how much has that impacted what you do now and how you share your faith now um would you say there's a direct link in what you learned you can really see how that's shaped you as a christian um just interested in, in what you found in your your own personal evangelism how that connects to that and in relation to what you see others doing as well what would you say is a, yeah. your, your kind of flavor 
I think it's definitely shaped me, not always for good. So again, um, you know, I, I, I think it's still fair to say that, you know, Northern Ireland, um, although, you know, the violence has died down and we're all very thankful for that, there was still a, a large degree that it was a sectarian culture. And of course, um, during the Troubles, that was divided along political lines. Um, but the way that that shapes you is that you largely play a culture war where you have different narratives. And then there are other people who have a completely different reading of Irish history. And um, in order to sort of justify yourself and reinforce your own narrative, you just sort of caricature the others and you engage with them in terms of um, suspicion. And as I say, caricature. And largely, you, you know, you, you just sort of keep your own house in order and don't engage um, with others. And in, in some ways, that then translated into my evangelism, where, as I said, you know, I was, I was really passionate, growing really strong um, in my faith as a young teenager, but, but had no idea how to cross the bridge um, into this, this context where my rugby friends, my school friends had no idea about Christianity. Um, and a lot of my evangelism at that time sort of um, just took the form of, of sort of telling people, you know, what they needed to hear and just sort of repeating the, the, the Christian rhetoric and kind of, you know, having nothing positive to say about culture, having no having a very sacred secular um, mindset in terms of, you know, the purposes of things. Christian ministry was um, was the height, you, you know, and everything else was it was OK, but, it, you know, there was you know, the real thing was Christian ministry and that thing. So I had no um, Christian perspective on doing stuff that wasn't either being a pastor or, um, you, you know, being an evangelist or something like that. Um, and it really, I think, took me to, one, get um, begin to sort of get responsibility for engaging with young people at that church I mentioned and realize that actually some of this stuff wasn't going to work. It wasn't just enough to tell young people sort of what to think. Um, I had to show them how to think. And they had massive questions, questions that I'd never even really thought about or, or known really existed. Um, so evangelism never really took the form of like, um, you know, engaging people through good questions and raising questions about other people's narrative in a respectful and a sensitive way. It was largely just about competing and caricaturing. Um, and I realized with the young people that that wasn't going to work. And that kind of introduced me to the whole area of apologetics. And the reason then why I went to um, Oxford and wanted to train with ACA was really to think about, well, I at that point perceived myself maybe coming back to Ireland and planting a church um, potentially in the south, which is a much more secular part of the island than the north. And thinking, how am I, how am I going to do this? How am I going to engage people who are heavily secularized and have been secularizing for two generations now? People who are disenfranchised with the abuses that they've seen in some of the cultural um, religion and also the institutional religion in terms of the abuse of, of the Catholic Church. What am I going to say? Um, I'm just needing training in that. And that's why I went sort of over to get. And it's been nice now to come back with a, a different lens, having sort of um, lived in a, in a culture for five years that's much more post-Christian than Northern Ireland um, is at the minute and really being able to um, take those questions seriously, not be offended by them, again, not caricature them as, you know, oh, this is just people trying to have a go, but really being prepared to engage 
in a meaningful and respectful and yet a persuasive way. So, yeah, it's been it's it's been good and it's been bad. I I I do worry that with some of the real sort of spiritual climate change that's going on in Northern Ireland now, um, certainly even from an ethical point of view, I I worry that this sectarian propensity that we have may begin to work itself out in the church, whereas either we just sort of privatize our faith in order to maintain it or we get um, very politically active and try and change the culture and the legislation by um, activism, hmm. um, uh, rather than sort of finding that road of how to live in Babylon and yet you know, live for God um, and engage people in, in a good way. So you know, those are questions that I'm still wrestling with, um, but I'm finding that the experience that I've had is now really helping me um, to think through this in a better way and also then help others who are asking major questions about how they live out their faith, how they communicate their faith in a very changing climate. Hmm. Yeah, the, that sort of idea of when someone's asked you a question, the instinct to give an answer straight away rather than clarify and ask questions back, not to dodge, which sometimes it's what it looks like when it's in text form, but to, <laughs> to, um, to definitely clarify and, and ask questions about the the view behind the question sometimes can be really really powerful and really helpful and also really humbling because <laughs> you want to hear the person and what they're what they know before you kind of attack what you think is their their view um, so all that's really really helpful anyway in any form of evangelism to to be prepared with good questions um not necessarily all the answers I mean, well, that's a Christ-like approach, isn't it? I mean, Jesus was the, the master of, uh, of asking questions for, for clarification and things like that. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, got, uh, it's got a rich, uh, rich tradition, isn't it? Yeah. You know, don't necessarily make, make, a, make the most of that, but it's, you know, like you said, you know, clarifying and asking good questions of, of, of someone you're, you're engaging with is just, it's just so important. It's so easy to misunderstand. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's not particularly you mentioned Phil about you know engaging with people via text, and I do think there's something particularly dehumanizing about engaging with people, um, or at least our propensity to dehumanize when we when we engage with people who we disagree with over social media, and the best of us do it, um, because it's just it is just text, and therefore it's abstract, and you know we we can engage um, as as critically and um, sometimes as disrespectfully as we want. It's very hard to do that when the person's, you know, um, in the room in front of you and you're talking to them. Um, that's not to sort of discount any of the, the benefits of social media. I mean, we're on social media now, but, uh, but it is to say that actually we need to be really careful because it is so easy to disconnect people from their ideas. And a lot of these ideas come from people's personal experience and the way people have been shaped. And the only way that we're going to discover, you know, the person behind the question, as I think Jesus did so perfectly, was to um, is to really begin to get to know them. And the only way you can do that is by asking questions, you know. Mm -hmm. And so um, this, you know, this abstracting sort of how people think from who people are um, can be quite dangerous, I think, because um you know, people are more than just the sum of their ideas and their ideas, you know, are often the flow 
the the the, the downflow of um, you know other other particular things that have gone on in their life and their experience. And and in that sense, then even if you answer the the question in a perfectly coherent and rational way, you can you know completely miss the person. And in that mm-hmm. sense, like how well have you served them? You know, but you guys know this. Yeah, no, it's helpful though. It's it's good to hear it on on the channel, and those listening in can always uh, come back with with questions or critique um, on that on that format. And I think in especially Twitter is profoundly difficult to come across graciously in in two forty or one eighty characters or, or whatever it is, and it's just so easy to get caught up in in a bit of a storm. And you read anger where there isn't and um well there might be and you miss it <laughs> either way it kind of works both ways um but it, yeah and that's kind of a forum for for very diff- yeah and we, we end up with difficult conversations done really badly online and it it no one's ever i think been convinced of a different view um through a twitter thread oh, i could be wrong uh, <laughs> I, think, I think I think sometimes I think the, the people don't go there necessarily the primary purpose of learning mm. it's, it's, it's usually go there as an advocate of something trying to per, you know trying to um, you know, signal about a um, particular issue and it's 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 toxic I, I I stopped engaging on there I just use it for for work stuff I just it's just uh, I get it makes me angry and I become a horrible person like something I type stuff out and what are you doing? You'd never say that to someone's face. Why are you typing it? Okay, right, I'll delete that. Um, it's, it's, it's very difficult, I think, to have meaningful dialogue in, in somewhere like um, somewhere like Twitter. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and, and yet I'm on there constantly. <laughs> yeah. one, one thing I was going to ask, Gary, so you mentioned, I, I'd say probably half the people we've had on the podcast now that a, a sort of defining... Um, experience of of their becoming a christian or cementing that has been some kind of encounter or experience you mentioned when you were 17 that you had an encounter in god i mean what could you tell us a little bit more about that yeah well i mean it's it was um i was a little bit younger i was 15 um, okay. but it um you know some of the some of the problems that i had translating how i'd grown you know in the, in the faith that i had at 17 was um, was really difficult for me and a lot of it was fear but in terms of I mean for me I had grown up um, you know when my parents faith was very real um, more than even just you know the fact that I, I, um, you know sort of being brought along to, to events and things like that at, at church I remember bumping into my parents faith literally and um, on numerous occasions I would you know walk into you know my parents bedroom and catch my dad you know on his knees praying or my mom reading her bible and and so that had an influence on me um in in the sense that whether it was true or not i certainly realized that it was real for them that it impacted their life that this wasn't just a religious thing that we did on sunday um but uh, of course you know I, i was brought up in quite a conservative church um, and so for me, I, I often conflated sort of Christianity with keeping rules and sort of behavioral codes, mm-hmm. as it were, ra- rather than sort of um, ethics and how we behave coming out of a relationship. It was very much just sort of, um, 
you know, this is the way you're meant to live. This is what you're meant to do. Christianity was as much about what you don't do and what you're against, you know, as it was about what you're for. And so I became convinced that even if it was true, that it would ruin my life. Um, and it might be good as an insurance policy when I die, but, you know, it would, it would seriously limit the kind of life that I wanted to live. And then I ended up, I'd sort of disconnected with youth ministries and things at church for a number of years and was just bored and decided sort of last minute to attend a youth weekend. And similar, I think, to some of what your other guests have said, you know, there wasn't, it wasn't like an individual speaker who really, what they said caught me. I, I can't remember what was said, but I can remember just having, despite sort of having everything as a young man going for me and everything that I was made to believe as a young man would make me happy and fulfilled, there was a real existential emptiness there and a confusion. And um, I just knew um, on the Saturday night of that youth event that, that God was calling me home, that he was calling me to give my life to him um, and that that was the missing piece as it were, you know, the Augustinian sort of heart restless till it finds its sort of peace in, in God, that kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, and so the, some, of the, some of the leaders were getting together to pray in a, in a room upstairs. Um, and I just walked into it and, you know, unsolicited, nobody talked to me, just walked in and gave my life to Christ there and and literally knew at that moment something had profoundly changed i can't explain it completely rationally but i just knew that something dramatically had had changed i had been born again in in that sense and 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 again that was tested and and proved a lot in um, the ensuing months and years because i developed my, my desires just totally changed i developed a passion for studying the bible relentlessly um you know, that, that I'd never, ever had before. I was aware of like, you know, things in my life that weren't right that I'd never been aware of before and then had a desire to, to change them and to put them right, you know. So I just knew that I was different um, and um, that this was real. But at that stage, interestingly, a lot of that was um, an experience. I, I'd never been brought up in a context where my faith was to be cultivated in the soil of questions. And I can remember going into the sixth form one time and um, a friend talking to me about Christianity and asking me questions like, you know, how are you, how are you convinced that the Bible is true when it's all this, you know, cobbled together work of sort of folklore and questions about suffering and questions about evolution and, um, and a, a, na a natural explanation for the origins of the universe. I'd never heard these questions before, never mind knew any answers to them. Um, and again, then rather than engage them and go and work them out, I just retreated from them back into the sort of echo chamber that I was comfortable in. Um, and, and for a long time, for a number of years after that was happy enough until I got working with these young people and really began to realize that these questions needed to be addressed if they were going to take Christianity seriously. So, um, you know, it's, it's different for everyone, isn't it? Some people, it's very much like a rational process. Um, I have a friend who's, you know, he's he's um, he's a philosopher, and for him, it's like he struggles with any experiential or even existential side of stuff because he's so rational and cognitive. Whereas other people, you know, it's it's a different process. The experiential stuff maybe comes first, 
and then the sort of big questions come later on. Um, and I think that just yeah. displays the diversity, you know, of God working with us and taking our personalities um, and our experiences seriously, you know, rather than sort of treating us like machines. There's no, you know, one formula for how we come to Christ in that sense, but Christ is, is the only formula for coming to God in that sense. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's really good. I think it's really, yeah, really helpful to remind ourselves of that. Um, and, and that's partly why I like asking that question is the initial question anyway, because everyone's story is so different and the way that God has revealed them, himself to each one of us um, is a, a good story. And, and it's another testimony of and witness of, of what God is, is doing in people's lives um, and sets us off for where the conversation is going <laughs> as well. Yeah. I was wondering just quickly, so what is it you do with Solas now? Um, sort mm. of the world yeah, so, so Solas is um, an organization that specializes in two main things. We, we focus on evangelism and really engaging in, in people with the claims of Christianity, um, often outside the walls of the church. So going really to where people are, be that university campuses, coffee shops, asking big questions, having conversations, doing presentations, doing Q&A, that kind of thing. And then the other side of the coin is training Christians in how to meaningfully communicate their own faith in their own particular um, context. So that's really what we do. And my role in that um, is, is sort of, well, there's, there's different sides to it. One is just to be a sort of general speaker alongside Andy, who... Um, who contributes to sort of that vision and then the other part of it is is specifically here in Ireland to sort of try and build up an infrastructure in which those place and um, those things are happening because we need it because as I said you know our culture is radically changing I would say that the Northern Irish culture is much more like an American culture than even like an English culture in terms of um, where things are spiritually and how things are viewed and approached in terms of the spiritual climate and the awareness of evangelism and how we do evangelism. Um, so there's massive challenges. And as I said, you know, there's been the tectonic plates, you know, even legally have, have shifted. And a lot of people sort of haven't been ready for it because they've always had this comfort of, oh, we have quite a few, you know, Christian politicians and they'll always sort of fly the flag for, for Christian ethics. And now a lot of that's gone and people, you know, in a sense, it's only, um, you, you know, it's, it's only reflective of what's been going on wider in culture. But because Christians aren't engaged enough mm-hmm. in wider culture, it's been a real shock to the system. Um, so there's a, there's a real need to sort of um, think carefully uh, and reflect and think creatively about how we actually begin to, to practically engage a culture that is, um, increasingly post-Christian so that's kind of my role to sort of play my part in that on behalf of Solus. Yeah sounds, sounds great. Yeah I mean, that's kind of where this channel comes out of trying to figure out how to engage with culture Christianly <laughs> uh, and, and figure out we have this better story but it doesn't seem to be either understood or it's caricatured or it's um just not shared in for whatever reason people aren't aren't really dealing with the, the questions that culture seems to have now um and 
in, in my experiences short experiences as a one of the leaders in a church it's trying to figure out how i can play my part in that and how we can as a church move forward in that area uh teaching others how to how to engage this stuff but also not making it so highbrow and this is only for those who are well-read and highly educated but this is something that you can do every day when someone shares a news story about the abortion rule <laughs> or ruling or the uh, stuff about euthanasia or the stuff about same-sex marriage whatever is in the news having someone the, the everyday christian knows why they might be against something but also the the sort of positive aspect of that why it's a better story um and i i think that's that's kind of the heart my heart behind doing what we're doing um and and i appreciate what salas is doing in their their webinar today with um david bennett and and witten was was fantastic on that so if uh, you're watching check out solas and and their last stream today it was it was very good i think i think that's a really important point phil actually that, that you make in terms of our ethics coming out of our story um and not the other way around and not disconnecting our ethics from the the christian meta narrative and i think that's um certainly in terms of, of northern ireland i think sometimes we really struggle and um, with that, because because we've been taught behavior and because Christ, Christianity is largely being about behavioral conformity to the right pattern, it's largely disconnected from the real story. And so in, in many ways, we don't know the full gospel. Um, you know, we know sort of John 3.16 and we're told how to behave. But putting all that to, together and showing how we draw from the wells of the Christian story in order to know how to live um, and how that's beautiful and how that is actually the most humanitarian vision um, that, you know, that we can find, that's, that's different. Um, and, and I find that even among young people, you know, that they want to do the right thing. They kind of know, well, I want to, you know, I want to be a Christian and I want to live the right way. But even when we're talking about some of these big ethical issues, they just want to be told what to do. They want to be told what to think again, rather than how to think. Um, and what we're trying to do is to say, well, there's no point. So we've been preaching to people sort of ethical conclusions. This is this, you know, therefore this, you behave this way. But all the antecedents to that in terms of, you know, why this makes sense and the premises so that you come to that conclusion, we don't really know. And of course, the problem with that is then like we don't know. Once you don't know, then you don't know how to communicate it to somebody who doesn't understand it and who totally disagrees with the conclusion. You mm -hmm. see what I mean? So it's, you know, so so on the one hand, then. Um, we purely interact with people at the, you know, in butt heads at the point of ethical conclusions, rather than at the point of the narratives and the ideas and the value systems that are informing it. Um, but also because we don't even know that in our own story, we don't know how to communicate it in a persuasive way. And therefore, it just sounds like authoritarianism, you know, and a paternalistic approach to behavior and things like that, but rather than a really persuasive um, sense. So, so I mean, I'm very much um, of of the conviction that um, Christian ethics comes out of the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. If He's not Lord, then it doesn't matter. But if that story is true, then it has implications. And I'm I'm a bit of a fan of of some of the writings of um, 
Stanley Hirevat. Don't know if you you guys have heard, but he's a he was an ethicist, sort of at, at Duke and things like that. Some of his writings really helpful. But I love a quote that he says: "Is that the role of the Christian ethic is to bring people back to their overarching story and help them in it to find the resources, the moral resources, to help them see what it means to be the people called Christian." You know, so you cannot disconnect these two things because on the one hand, then it won't make sense to critical thinkers, including young Christians who are being asked to live this way and are critical thinkers themselves. And this doesn't fly with them because they're, you know, they're working this stuff out in every other area of their life. But somehow Christianity's not asking them to do that. It's mm -hmm. quite an Islamic approach, you know, to um, to sort of ethics and things like that. It's, it's very sort of like authority you know driven as opposed to actually engaging i could talk loads about it i mean the story of um abraham who's the paradigm of faith you know in the old testament and how god not just takes what abraham does and how he behaves seriously but helps him often through questions and engaging with them you know to to see that actually this is this is good um, and this is not just sort of, you know, God, this God who's engaging with Abraham is not the kind of God that we might find on, you know, Mount Olympus or something like that. He's a God who actually wants to engage with us and um, follow him on the basis that he's worthy of it, mm -hmm. not sort of, you know, follow him because we have to and we may be suspicious that he's worthy of, of anything like that. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I think it has to draw out of our story. Otherwise, we won't be able to communicate it and it won't make sense to anybody we ask to, to look at it. Yeah, I like that you brought up Stanley Harawas. I, I read his his autobiography, is it Hannah's Story? I read, uh, it was the first book of the year uh, that I read um, and really enjoyed finding out more about him. Um, yeah, really interesting. I know he's had incredibly influential, probably, probably the most influential Christian ethicist probably of the generation, really. Um, yeah, I'd just be interested, really, like, how does, how, how's Christian ethics kind of relevant today? You know, we're largely, um, you know, secular culture. I know Northern Ireland's a little bit, a little bit different, um, but at least over where, you know, the rest of the, sort of the UK, what, what, um, you know, what, what relevance does it has, have anymore, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, for me, what's interesting about Christian ethics or ethics in general is this real question of, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to, why do our lives matter at all? Why does it matter that we live certain ways other than other ways and, and what is the basis for that? So really, I mean, I, I think it's, I, I think in terms of just sort of thinking about ethics abstractly again, you know, it can appear quite irrelevant, you, you, you know, and, and quite philosophical and abstract and all the rest of it. But I think, you know, we're, <laughs> We just can't help not be ethical. We can't, as human beings, help not want to engage with these big questions and answer the question sort of, you know, how ought we to live? You know, so, you know, again, we often, um, you know, think about those those four big questions, sort of where do I come from? Why do I exist? How should I live? And where am I going? And I think that third question, how should I live? is is as important as ever and whether that's you know in terms of um sexual ethics or climate change ethics or you know the ethics of of what we do with coronavirus and all that kind of stuff like we can't help but engage with it you know so um 
you know, whether it's Christian ethics or whether it's any kind of other ethics, you know, to be human is to have to reflect on how we ought to live, either personally or at a greater level as as society. You know, so it's all it's always relevant in that sense. So, so what does what does what would you sort of say Christian ethics offers um, that sort of secular ethics doesn't? Like, what 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 does what what, what does Christianity actually cor- contribute to the the sort of current ethical issues? Would you say? Um, I mean, I I think um, I mean again the the first thing to say is that look if if Jesus Christ isn't Lord. Um, then Christian ethics doesn't matter. You know, if, if Jesus Christ isn't who he says he is, then um, then how he calls us to behave doesn't matter. Um, and, and we don't need to think about it, and we need to find some other way of exploring those ethical questions. So it only matters if if Jesus is who he says he is. Now, and, and in a sense, that's where I would want to start, even if we think about this evangelistically you know we're often i think even as christians because you know we we think about these issues and we read about these issues um they're often you know we often have our ethical hobby horses that we like to get on and then when we feel well read and we feel confident enough to engage but we often start with other people at that place you know of of um ethical sort of deliberation and it's it's not always the best place to start i can remember um, chatting to a girl about uh, sexual ethics when I was on a, an events week um, with Aka in Cardiff um, and she you know her big issue with Christianity was uh, sexual ethics and what it might say about same-sex attraction and gay marriage and all that kind of stuff and uh, we got talking and all the rest of it and I can remember saying to her look none of this matters unless Jesus is who he says he is, you know, but if he is who says he is, then do you think that it might matter what he says about who we are, what he says about how we live, and also what it says about um, the best way to live in terms of that sexual dimension? And she was able to say, well, yes, you know, it makes logical sense, you know, and so I would, I would often start with that place rather than sort of jump into um, the differences necessarily about where we land on ethical issues. I would want to start with um, the reason why it all matters in the first place with people and try not to get caught up in that. Now, you can't help it in a sense because a lot of people want to go there um, and that's fine. But, you know, Jesus didn't come, you know, preaching sexual ethics at the beginning of his ministry. He came saying the kingdom um, of heaven has come, it's at hand. You know, repent and believe in, in the gospel and I think we got to get it that way around um, and if we can do that then I think at the very least our Christian ethics will make sense and it did for for that girl in Cardiff that night it's it, um, you know if I had just launched in and started talking about you know sexual ethics and things like that she probably would have listened to me for two minutes and moved on but because we started further back in terms of these bigger questions about how do you make sense of Jesus? You know, how do you account for our existence? Where do you find, you know, your value and your meaning and your significance and all that? Then um, it was, it was, you know, there were much, there were many more steps, but they were much smaller and it was much more of a straightforward pathway to that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think um, 
we we need to think through our approach on this and, and where we prioritize and where where we engage people. And then you know I you know when it comes to the ethical issues, I would just want to ask questions. You know, I think rather than just sort of say, well, the Bible says this, or you know, start throwing out you know my um, you know my thesis on particular ethical issues and things like that. I think the best way to approach this is by asking questions about why they you know how they get to the ethical position that they get to and how that makes sense and whether there's you know coherency there and how does it correspond with you know the way that we see the world and things like that um and uh you know and then sort of move more into well here you know i'm a christian and you know i find this i i find that you know this different ethical persuasion persuasive because you know, so rather than sort of, again, I think we have a propensity to just jump right in and uh, meet other people at that point of greatest conflict. When actually, I think if we've walked a journey with them, um, then there may be a point of conflict, but there, it, it, it's much more likely that we'll be able to work through it sort of carefully and, and rationally and respectfully um, because we've, you know, we've already built up somewhat of a relationship. There's two sort of branches from that. I'm trying to figure out which one to come first. But there's there's an element of how you read the Bible in that. Um, I mean, even last last week when we were talking a little bit about um, what well, we touched on the topic of bioethics with uh, Duncan Forbes and someone in the chat just threw out a verse as if that disproved uh, a significant part of Christian ethics. But that's that's often how Christian ethics have been done in the past is here's this Bible verse, the Bible says it, I believe it, therefore I'm against this. And again, there, I mean, it's, it's such an overused word now is narrative. I mean, everyone's using that word, but it's important because of the way that the Bible works, this, this revelation of who God is from Genesis to Revelation, just going to one point and saying, this is what God says, I believe it, therefore we do it, has then meant, and I think that's what's made many Christians become atheists because they read the Bible like that, they become atheists and they still read the Bible like that and start launching these, these sort of verbal grenades at Christianity. And we go, well, actually, when we look at context, narrative, genre, um, both context in the in the passage, but also in the culture, it starts to make a bit more sense and actually look a little bit more beautiful and a better story. And I think that's the the part of our evangelism that we need to walk people through. But we we are in danger of missing that when we become like these evangelists that are, well, <laughs> I won't name any names, but which Ten Commandments have you broken? Well, therefore, you've sinned. God is angry at sin. He sent Jesus to die. And so, well, is Christianity really just a a rule book that you've broken and therefore need to be, and it becomes a really disjointed story. Um, and how we then wrestle with that is, is really important as a Christian. We need to wrestle with those things. I'm not really sure where it's going, but that kind of came, <laughs> came out of what you were, you were saying that with, with ethics, it's, it's so important to ask big questions to find the foundations of where those decisions are being made while also pointing out that while there are there are rules there are ways that christians should live it's not just all about the rules um mm. 
And so I, I'll be really interested in how, how, I mean, you've done things with, with Ocker in, in um, student forums and, and things like that, events weeks. How, how would you, and one of the most common questions I think is, uh, that has been answered is, is, is Christianity all about rules? And what, what's your kind of take on that? How would you respond? What, what kind of um, resources maybe you, you'd offer uh, someone who, who thinks like that, that it's just about what I can and can't do. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, for me, um, I love that kind of question because it, it connects so much with my story, you know, and that that is how I understood it. But I think you talked about, Phil, disconnecting ethics from our story, but I think even worse than that is disconnecting ethics from the person of God himself. God's not just a story, he's a person. And so, so much of, um, you know, when we see both in the Old Testament and in the New, and I could give you examples from both, um, you know, God invites us to take a look at who he is. He invites us to ask questions. He's not a God who's afraid of them. He's a God, as we spoke about earlier, who takes our personalities um, and our proclivities seriously because he wants to he wants us to get to know him and to trust him on the basis of who he is and therefore obey him on the basis of who he is so that not only is our faith not blind but our obedience is not blind either i always i love that those passages in revelation um where you know those great worship passages in revelation four and five where you have you know people from every tribe and tongue and nation standing before the throne and again very significant you know because at the beginning of Revelation 4, we're invited into heaven. And all of those parts, Revelation 4 through to Revelation 7, is, is asking us to take a good and hard look at the throne. In other words, who is the one on the throne and what is the nature of his government? Because it doesn't really matter. You know, God, people can have all kinds of power. People can sit on thrones and be tyrants. They can be despots. You know, I think Christianity takes this really seriously. It's not just that we're to obey God purely because he is God, but we're to obey him on the basis of his character. And it's interesting that as the, that crowd stand around the throne and say glory and honor, dominion and power, they freely give it. Um, it's not on the basis of blindness, but it's in the basis of worthy are you, O Lord. And you can only know if somebody's worthy, if you're prepared to take a good hard look at them and understand them and see how they react and see what kind of God um, they are. And that's why I think, you know, you mentioned um, narrative is such a cliche and it's such a buzzword. Journey is such a cliche and such a buzzword. But it's really interesting to me that that's exactly both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We see God doing that. Jesus takes his disciples on a journey. And the first thing he says to them before he tells them how to live is to say, come and see, mm. come and observe my life, you know, come and see. In fact, Peter in his second letter says that we were called by his excellency and glory. In other words, there was a beauty about Jesus's character. There was a winsomeness um, about who he was and how he acted that attracted um, these men, different and hardened as some of them were, that attracted to him. There was a real virtue about who he was that won them over mm. and made them want to live that way as well. And similarly, even in the Old Testament, again, you know, the story of Abraham, it's a literal journey, isn't it? Mm -hmm. God takes Abraham all around Cana on a literal journey, but it's 
But the literal journey is only a metaphor for a journey at a much higher level. And that is the journey of getting to know who this God is. Abraham moving from a, a pagan to, you know, the example, the go-to example of what it means to have faith in God, learning who he is, learning what this God is like. And of course, one of those instances where Abraham has to learn what God is like is the incident where God is going to pour out judgment on the cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's very interesting that before he does that, God says, shall I hide from my servant Abraham what I'm going to do? Now, why would God feel the responsibility to do that? Well, Abraham knows that Lot is in Sodom. Um, and can you imagine what would happen if God didn't say anything and suddenly Abraham gets up out of his tent one morning and sees smoke and ashes rising from the plain of what used to be Sodom. And then Abraham goes and inquires of the Lord, what did you do? And the Lord says, I destroyed it. And it would make, in a sense, Abraham think, well, God just destroyed it arbitrarily, just like that. You know, he's just the kind of capricious God from Mount Olympus that just does one good thing one day you know, and then goes to destroy us. The kind of Egyptian mentality, oh, he takes us out of Egypt one day and then he brings us into the desert to destroy us in an even worse day. He's just this evil, capricious God. And yet Abraham then begins to inquire of the Lord. Why? Because what's he asking? He wants to know, shall the judge of all the earth do what's right? Now, we're all passionate about justice. We're all passionate, in a sense, about right judgment. And judgment's not the same as condemnation. It takes the same amount of judgment to love as it does to condemn. But Abraham wants to know that if God is a judge, is he going to judge, is his judgment going to be moral? Mm. And is he going to judge on the basis of, of what's right? And then he goes on and he asks these questions. If there's 45 righteous, would you still destroy? God says no, right down to 10. What's he doing there? Abraham's, he's, trying to find out what God is like. Is he the kind of God who arbitrarily wipes out and judges the righteous with the wicked? Or is he the kind of God who can morally distinguish between unrighteousness and righteousness um, and judge accordingly? Because the New Testament says, strangely as it might seem, Lot was a righteous man. So at least Abraham knew that there were some righteous in that city but it's all it's all a question of what kind of god is this that i'm expected to follow and then on that basis where abraham finds out that god isn't you know a sweeping capricious deity and that he is able to morally distinguish then he keeps following and i think it's the same for us we're allowed to ask questions of god god was prepared to enter into that dialogue and that question and answer session with abraham why because he knew it was important for Abraham's faith. And I think God knows that these things are important for our faith. We need to know who he is before we're prepared to take seriously how he says we should live. Yeah, I think before, before we go on the next question, that's raised a, a converse, conversation or a couple of comments on on the chat that I just think is important to engage with. And, and it's, it's a very uh, common uh, argument against um christians is it would be a lot easier to get to know god if he simply spoke for himself instead of leaving it up to humans to do this talking like every other god uh and then will your god ever step in and speak for itself like in the end times or something and my my response would be well that's why we're discussing the bible is because god has spoken um why we discuss jesus death and resurrection because we believe that's god coming 
down and revealing who he is through through Jesus. Um, but I think there's there's quite a shorthand response, and I don't want to respond too flippantly. But just in in, in your um, and, and Dan, you might have a, have a response as well. Is there anything more that you would you'd say to to that question? Will your God step in and speak speak for themselves? Dan, when did you say something? I've spoken quite a lot. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I kind of just sort of restate what, what you said for. I mean, I don't know if it's almost related to sort of divine hiddenness and stuff. That's sort of a big problem. You know, why, where is, where is God? Um, you know, I believe in God. If I could just see him, um, um, that why doesn't, why, why doesn't God just sort of speak, speak for himself? And that, that is, I know, I think that's one of the toughest, for me, I think one of the toughest Christian, uh, you know, objections is, you know, is where, where, where is God sometimes? Um, and, um, you know, we, but uh, he doesn't, um, you know, we've got scripture um, and that seems like, uh, you know, it says it's sufficient. It seems sufficient. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure I have a really good response because I think it's it is for, for me. It's one of those. It's the it's a it's the big it's the big question more so than problem of evil uh, suffering for, for for me is is hiddenness of God. I think it I think it is the toughest objection to Christianity. I think it can be tied to suffering quite quite. Yeah, quickly. yeah, and that as well. Yeah, for sure. Well, why, where is God when it hurts? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I think I think that's really important that we don't pass over that question because it is one that a Christian has to wrestle with just as much as anyone else. I, I do think God has spoken and I think that's why the Bible is important. Uh, I do wrestle with why we don't see certain events and miracles in, in the way that uh, other generations have. Um, um, there's definite historic uh, re- recordings of where it would seem God has spoken clearly to, to church to, uh, through church history. Um, and uh all the way back to the to the prophets of the Old Testament. So, uh, yeah, uh, Gareth, do you have anything to add to that? Well, I think I, I really think it's a fair question, and I appreciate it because I do fully accept that some of the ways that I've said that God, you know, invites those examples that I've given in the Bible to sort of come and see and take a look is not the same way that that, that um, we're going to be able to do that. Um, I, I guess when people ask me this question, I always want to. Um, Sort of ask a question back and just say, well, what would it look like for God to be more obvious to you? Um, because I think that can sort of help clarify um, a few things. Uh, and and then also, um, you know, a lot of people would say, well, you know, if if Jesus showed up or if God did something, He sort of wrote my name in the sky and things like that. Um, and I think in some ways, yes, you know, that could you know that could certainly be be helpful but again remember that some of these things have happened um and you know people still have trusted you know a lot of you know many many people in jesus's lifetime they saw the miracles they heard his teaching they um had access at similar levels that many of the disciples had and that wasn't enough they still rejected him and put him on a cross so this assumption that you you know as you know as long as God would just give this certain kind of evidence, then that will be enough. Um, is is not always necessarily true. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other the other issue I think is 
um, the question of why God's not necessarily as obvious as we might think is because of the nature of the relationship that he wants for us. Um, because, you know, God could just appear now. And yes, you know, we would be so overwhelmed and so, you know, in a sense, um, you know, overcome, you know, because um, of our distinction from him in terms of our ontology. And um, he's so far removed from us. But yes, in a sense, we might suddenly, um, you know, buy and relate to him as creator. But God's not interested just in us relating to him as creator. He's interested in us relating to him as children. And that's a very different process, mm -hmm. you know. So you can get a lot of people to relate to certain um, things just, you know, again, just out of fear and just out of um, not having an opportunity to do otherwise. I think it's actually a dignifying thing that God doesn't do that, that he doesn't override our freedom. He doesn't override our personality by just showing up, but he actually invites us to explore. Now, the question is whether you take seriously, you know, the, the Bible and certainly the New Testament as evidence that you can come and see and explore the life and the character of Jesus not in the same physical way, but certainly in, in, in an observational way that the disciples did as well. And I think that's why the Gospels were written to invite us to do that and to have the historical record. It's certainly the reason why it's been preserved. And it's one of the reasons why we have four Gospels and not just one, because this is central to what Christianity is all about. But ultimately, you know, God wants to... Um, God wants us to relate to him as children who know who he is, who trust him and on that basis shape our lives accordingly. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's, I, I've done, um, we do little short answers um, to big questions, little videos um, on the Solus website. And I've done, I've recently done one on um, why is God not more obvious? So if you want to check that out, um, that might be helpful. It's only five minutes, um, but it's more, it's probably more succinct and coherent than I can be just off the top of my head at this point. We, we can put a link to that in the, in the video. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know what a lot of people say is the, the kind of, you know, um, is that, that God is real, you know, revealed, um, you know, just enough um, so that it's kind of rational um, to accept him, that, mm. that he exists and he's revealed himself, but not too much that it would be, um, that you'd be ignorant um, to, to reject him. And I think that's really clear when you read a lot, a lot of the, you know, atheists and, and agnostic philosophers of religion is that you know those people more than people like Dawkins, Hitchens, Harris, Dennett, etc. Um, have an appreciation that actually there is um, there are good reasons uh, for, for, for Christian theism but there's also enough to be skeptical um, and um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. I mean I, I often ask, ask the question you know like um, and again I think this this will help us realize how serious we actually are about this question. So granted that we may not have the physical evidence of being able to observe God physically or hear him audibly the way Abraham could, um, but that's not to say that those are only certain kinds of evidence. You know, Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and believed. And of course, people say, oh, there you go. It's blind, blind faith. Well, it's not yeah. blind faith because seeing is only one particular kind of evidence. Um, and so in that sense, you know, if I walk into, I think I used this illustration in the video, if I walk into a crime scene and I'm a crime scene investigator, I may not see, have seen the particular act 
in the flesh to know who's done it. But there's circumstantial evidence, there's maybe forensic evidence, there are other strands of evidence that I can pull together without physical sight in order to deduce what actually happened and who was responsible. And I think it's the same with Christianity. There are other strands of evidence, um, philosophical evidence, historical evidence, um, you know, experiential evidence, all different kinds of evidence that we're giving given and the real question is so granted that most of us haven't had that physical evidence how seriously have we taken those other evidences mm. in exploring whether god might be there or not mm. you know and um, you know if we're not prepared to explore any of that then it may not in fact make much of a difference if god was to show up in person yeah i mean sorry uh just gonna say a little bit um on that just in in the gospels when you were talking i I made note of it you were just saying that um they saw his excellency and beauty uh, and i I found that interesting because i've I've given uh, a gospel to a close friend of mine who's not a christian at all and the first comment he made from the first couple chapters was i just can't understand why they follow him why do they give up everything and follow him like i don't know if i'd be able to do that um and that's it's a significant thing like why on earth have they done that but what i what i also know is the gospels are very good at showing the different responses people have throughout jesus's ministry so you have the disciples who do give up everything and follow but you also have the nine out of ten lepers who have received a physical healing that makes them clean allowed to be back in society a significant uh major thing from a, exile and outcast to to included into your community again because of a miracle and yet you didn't acknowledge who jesus was and you've got repeatedly some some believed but many doubted you've got all these um things that even when who we believe to be the very son of god uh, god himself uh in flesh we that people doubted him and and i think it is a little bit um maybe i just love the love the term from c.s lewis chronological snobbery to expect ourselves to be any different to that um and uh, as as london theatre said in the chat that a lot of skeptics will have uh very high standards of evidence and even some uh quotes matt dillahunty that says even if god turned up i wouldn't i wouldn't have it and mm. and so it's it is how how high is your threshold for evidence how high is your skepticism uh and and i think sometimes it is it's too high it is unwarranted level of skepticism towards the gospels um in comparison to other forms of history and i have actually seen people completely deny other forms of history um and then you get that wonderful line extraordinary evidence uh or extraordinary claims des- deserve extraordinary evidence and, and things like that. So, um, and, that, and Dan, you're, you're about to say something there before I, I jumped in. No, I sort of lost, lost my train of thought uh, now. Um, derailed you. <laughs> yeah. But it does, it does just raise that question, Phil, of what you're saying of just, just how open are you? We, you know, I mean, I'm, I remember we, I think we all like to think we're just, you know, we don't have biases and proclivities to sort of things. I love that, that quote, by Thomas Nagel, I find it very, um, mm. you know, very honest. He's an atheist philosopher, but he said, you know, when it comes even to the the consideration that there might be a God, I I don't want it to be true. I don't mm. want the universe to to um, 
be that way and so that's not that's not necessarily a question of evidence it's a, a question of you know you have a particular preference and that's you know keeping you from a serious consideration of the evidence i know it's not always like that but another area of this is you know sometimes the reason why jesus wasn't obvious um is because he um god shows up for relationship he doesn't just show up to sort of play games and to be tested. So there were times when, um, you know, followers of Jesus said, show us a sign, show us a miracle, and then we'll believe. And Jesus wouldn't do it because he knew that actually they weren't sincerely following him. They were just testing him. Mm. And God's not going to play that game. He's going to help us as much as we need if we're open and sincere. But if we're just playing games with him, then, um, you know, he's, he's, he's not going to, He's not going to conform to that because we're not sincere. Yeah. We, we're going to talk about by this, but I think that was really important to um, to cover that. I mean, Div- Divine Hiddenness does deserve a whole podcast in itself. Yeah, we should, we should probably do that. I think it'd be a I good think, one. I think, think we just scratched the surface a little. Just mm. on, <clears throat> on the final uh, point, just because there's a little bit of pushback from, from the commenter um, that God, Yahweh, has acted in exactly the same way as every other god and i just gently want to push back before we move on to another topic that jesus is completely unique (laughs) uh from any other worldview religion this isn't the same methodology instead of us having to work to appease the gods god came down into our world and uh, has changed everything uh and and you can read books and books about how that has changed the literally changed the world that we live in um I, I I'm glad, and, and it's connected to ethics as well. Yeah, because yeah, that's true. because the, the notion of sacrifice. There's something that 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 the cross is about sacrifice. Mm. It's about God who could have been in comfort condemning, uh, but instead condescending, coming down in love, uh, uh, living the life we couldn't live. Uh, living a life of, of, of sacrifice without compromise and that's very much leads to the Christian ethic about actually what well, I was wanting to talk to, to Gavin more about what what was the, the essential Christian aspect of, of Christian ethics mm. is 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 a lot of it, I think is is the nature of, of sacrifice um, and that's what really distinguishes it from sexual sec, uh, secular ethics um, you know we've got the uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan about go and do likewise um, and what does what does a Samaritan do? Well, he it sacrifice. He sacrifices his safety on what was a, a well-known dangerous route. He sacrifices uh, his, his comfort, his resources uh, for the good of another um, who didn't. Um, you know, and there, there's so many interesting things to, to follow up with that. Um, same with you know Jesus taking up his cross. That is, is a, a sacrifice. Um, and that's that's something that's an area of ethics that doesn't um, that doesn't exist within the the, the secular sphere um, because um, it's a motivation that doesn't exist without the gospel because it's it's very difficult to motivate yourself to live a life of sacrifice without an exemplar a moral exemplar as someone who lived a life of sacrifice who commands you to go and do likewise yeah. um, so we don't follow our desires and that's why it's so difficult for people you know when people we have you know discussions with people about you know sexual ethics about 
beginning of life ethics, about end of life ethics. Well, this is all tied into to sacrifice. The notion of Christian sacrifice is about sacrificing uh, some of your desires, sacrificing some of those comforts um, for, um, uh, for for the sake of follow, following Christ. And live, um, so, I'd love to hear Gareth sort of um, maybe discuss a little bit more about that. But that's what I I think it's important to distinguish about what, what's actually unique about Christian ethics. What what about the the different motivating factors um, that, that that drive our our kind of moral conclusions and moral thought and discussion. Yeah, I think I think that's um, really true, Dan. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it, it seems to be that in in a lot of um, ethics, we have to a lot of other ethical things we have to perform, we have to um, achieve a certain standard, even to have sort of moral status. Um, and a lot of it, you know, that we that we know, um, that, uh, one of the, the, the big principles of sort of secular ethics is, is autonomy and self-governance. And this idea of sort of self-actualization and things like that. I think, um, you know, one of the beautiful things about the Christian story is that um, because of a lot of, um, you know, a, a lot of the basis for our dignity and value and meaning and identity that we find in Christianity um, being outside of ourselves, both in terms of the fact that, um, in terms of being in relationship with God, I think that gives us a basis for being sacrificial and being altruistic. I'm not saying that, you know, only Christians can be altruistic, mm. but, it, but there's, you know, there's a real basis for it. I mean, one of the, so one of my areas of interest is, is end of life ethics. And um, of course, you know, we've got euthanasia, we've got physician assisted suicide, they're two slightly different things, but, but one of my um, areas of interest is, is high existential experiences um, lead people to make moral decisions at the end of life. So what I'm thinking about is um, there's a philosopher called Ronald Dworkin who basically says that, you know, all of our lives we have, in, individuals have what he calls critical interests. And these things are value judgments about who we are and what makes our life valuable. And the important thing about these is that we need to one, um, we need to make them in ethical independence. So they have to be ours, they can't be told to us what they are they can't be coerced by other people we have to make them ourselves and then it's important that we live up to them in order for our lives to have integrity so an example of this would be you know a, a guy who sees himself as able and fit and has a good career and has good you know and, and goes through the majority um, of his life as a strong independent self-actualizing individual and then he gets you know, a diagnosis of motor neuron disease or early onset dementia. And the prognosis of that is obviously dependency um, and disability and all the rest of it. And um, what, what Dworkin would say is simply because that's going to be a final chapter that is such a self-betrayal to who this person has made himself to be and, and believes he is in order to be his authentic self, it's better to end life at the beginning of that process so that you have a shorter life chronologically but a life with um, more integrity than you would otherwise have if you went through that um, debilitating experience and so you know you hear this a lot in sort of calls for euthanasia and physician assisted suicide that you know people say i don't fear death 
but I do fear who dying will make me become. And in that sense, you know, I find the Christian story more persuasive on the one hand, because, um, you know, if your value and your meaning and your identity is purely in your own hands, you know, and you have to self-actualize it, that's a very unstable place to put those things. It's a very unstable place to have that level, um, to, 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 to base your significance and your value and all the rest of it, because life is unpredictable. Life is fragile and these kinds of things happen. And so not only do you lose your abilities cognitively, physically, not only do you become dependent, but you lose that whole sense of what's valuable about your life, what's meaningful, why you matter. And that's a much more difficult thing to lose, perhaps, even than physical. Um, the beauty of the Christian story is that those things exist outside of you and the fact that you are made in the image of God you're loved um, by a God who knows who you are and values you and endows your life with meaning, regardless of circumstances, such that even if your circumstances go really bad, you don't lose those particular things. And so in that sense, you know, you may die, but you don't have to die in order to save, um, you know, your meaning or your dignity or uh, your authentic self. Um, and that enables um, you to face, you know, some of the most difficult experiences of life and not necessarily um, have those kinds of existential crises that might force you to say, the only way out here is to either have a doctor terminate my life or have a healthcare professional set things up and then I, and I end my own life in a particular way. Um, and it also values the whole role of, of Christian community that it allows others um, you know, to, to, to care for you and it allows you to be dependent without losing any of your worth or your value. So that's, you know, that's just one place in which I find like the Christian story really persuasive. Um, and obviously that, and if that's true, then it, it works out in the decisions, the ethical decisions we make um, at, you know, some of our most vulnerable and difficult moments in life. Yeah, the, there's a, a question that could take us down a, a different route, but I think it's really important to sort of think it through. So that if we have the, it'd be just interesting to sort of lay out where you see, before we go down this one route, what are the different secular perspectives? Because there must be, more, surely there's more than one, I mean, probably the most common response from at least a christian perspective of uh, secular societies well if there's no god then all you've got is utility and and that's the atheist the atheist perspective and i i, I don't want to straw man one position and say that's everyone's idea but what are the sort of different views if if we've got the christian perspective of your life matters because god has made you and uh you're made in his image he loves you no matter where you're at with your identity right now um what are the secular perspectives that go against that um well i think you you highlight one of the main ones i mean the the, the other sort of ethical framework is sort of consequentialism you know in the sense that um the consequences of a particular action you know if they're beneficial therefore they they justify doing it you know so in, in 
sort of crudely in a sense some of the ends you know justify the, the means whatever the outcome is therefore it's it's right and an element of that is this utilitarianism you know that actually um whatever provides the most sort of happiness and, and it, it generally is happiness um, and well-being that that people mean um whatever pro, you know whatever provides that for them is is uh you know it's is is the best thing the most amount of good for the most amount of people you know you've also got like whole you know, the whole virtue uh, ethic side of things as opposed to you know whether um you know a, a particular ethical action is um regardless of the the outcomes of it whether the act itself is a virtuous thing to do and some people will go down that line and you know there's elements of that that connect with christianity as well but it's not not strictly um you know a, a christian um position so there are you know that that's just a few um but a lot of it just sort of boils back down to this question of um you know what is a human being and where does the value of life come from Mm. Um, and what gives a person moral status such that it matters what we do to them mm. um, and those are really you know that, that those are really contested spaces yeah um, and a lot of the secular answers to that would be radically different to obviously the christian one yeah there's um yeah like you you were saying regards to i think autonomy seems to be the driving factor it's sort of um you know i i get to dictate how i live um, I also get to dictate how I die and no one gets to tell me, you know, what, what I can or can't do in terms of, uh, you know, those, those stages of my life. And yeah, people like James, uh, Rachel, so will talk about, you know, distinguish between sort of biological life and biographical life. Um, and, um, it's another, it's another dualism. I, I've, I've not come across that, but I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, and there's other things, I mean, the, the, Consequentialist sort of utilitarian sort of view is quite interesting because when when it talks about maximizing um, you know utility, whether that whether we take that to mean happiness, uh, pleasure, well-being, etc., and um, you know mis- minimizing bad consequences, well, it, it's it's really interesting because you, you have you have you've got sort of immediate consequences, but you also got long-term consequences, and one of the um, that are that have that there's a, an unknowability to those. So if you've got things going on, like in uh, situations in sort of in the Netherlands and Belgium, where they've had euthanasia sort of legalized for a while now, and the sort of discussions they're having, because it's, so say for us, so like if we say tomorrow they legalize euthanasia, okay? But a lot of people would have grown up um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a cultural context where um, we, we would have known something different. Yeah, so we would have known that actually there are hospices, um, there are that dying with dignity it doesn't have to be mean getting sort of put down like a like you like a like a pet, you know, a, a sick pet cat or, or dog or something like that. Um, we would have known something different. But what's what's interesting then have a, the next generation of people who come through, who um, who only know that. Yeah. Now it's really interesting looking at how how that shapes. The mind because you don't know you might not know about what hospice is you might not know what other uh what what dying with dignity could could mean you only know that when you get ill uh certainly you know, whether you're dying um you start having conversations about you know um 
about a, a well-lived life. You know, that you, you get to 60, you've lived well, there's a pretty good chance maybe you're gonna get cancer or dementia or, uh, you know, diabetes, you're gonna need a hip transplant, things like that. Well, do you know what? I, I, I don't necessarily want to burden my family uh, with me having to, to watch me die and having to, to, you know, to sell the house and put me in a, you know, in a nursing home. So why don't I just, you know, be euthanized? When I, I've, um, and that's the sort of discussions they're having now. So it's really interesting. And the, and the children having these expectations say, well, yeah, I mean, you've lived well. Thanks, Nan, for not wanting to burden us with your, with your, with your, your, your suffering. Thank you for sparing us. Um, from that and so you see the the long-term consequences of that um and how they're playing out i know it's not exactly what we're talking about but it's, it's interesting about these you've got those immediate consequences yeah that that individual can choose to die but there are all the implications of um and the discussions that develop from that a generation later and it's going to be interesting where they're where they're going they're having some very you know, interesting conversations because um you know why why does it have to be terminal illness why does the suffering have to be terminal why can't, you know, if you've got, you know, certain mental illness that's making life difficult, um, you know, you go blind in one eye, you, you know, you have, a, have to have a leg or am, am, amputated, you, you can't, you're in a wheelchair and you can't do the things you want to do. They're not terminal, but they do, you know, they do significantly affect your, your well-being. And so it's interesting, you know, if it's just down to autonomy, why not? Why not? Why not use your autonomy to choose to um, to be euthanized or put down for for that that kind of thing? Mm. Um, so it's just it's just interesting. I just thought the utilitarianism thing is just interesting because I said there's short, medium, and long term implications for that that don't get factored into the sort of utilitarian calculus. That mm. must then also have implications of on the other end of life. Also impacts this this conversation in some ways just thinking of how we view disability and i can't i can't seem to separate the two <laughs> in my own mind of if you are talking about disability as a um life ending scenario no matter what the disability might be if it changes your identity in such a way that you think ending it is ending life is the solution then why at 60? Why not at two? I mean, the, the lines of what, and that's one of my, my issues of looking at ideas of utility and, and secular views of ethics. I really wrestle with that. I, I can't figure out that all the lines just seem arbitrary to me. Yeah, they are. Well, they're, they're all linked. I mean, the, the, the way that you try and win the debate on, on euthanasia, trying to get it legal, is to focus on the fact you're only dealing with terminal illness mm -hmm. and you're trying to respect people's autonomy, which in a liberal democracy, you know, sort of liberalism, we, you know, we, you know, a key component of that is, is individual autonomy. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you, if you focus on, on those things, that's how you get the door open. But actually the, the, the kind of um, the implications of that, yeah, then you start having to actually, well, why is it just those those two things? Um, mm. I don't know what Gareth, Gareth probably thought a lot about this because yeah. this is your, this is your area. So otherwise <laughs> I would just, I'll just jabber on. Yeah, well, uh, your area as well, Dan, but yeah, that's <laughs> carry on the other end, but yeah, carry on Gareth. No, I agree. I mean, I, th I think you're right. I mean, if it's purely about autonomy and if that's, the sort of um, determining ethic, then there's no logical basis for um, restricting it. 
on you know restricting it to terminal illness as Dan says restricting it to a competent adult or the fact that it has to be voluntary or it has to be you know physician assisted suicide rather than euthanasia and in fact in the Netherlands and Belgium where euthanasia has been been legal for a while you know uh, uh, um, 16 to 18 year olds can request euthanasia um, and parents have to be consulted but they can't veto um, you know and a parent or guardian um, with with parental um, or guardian consent children as young as 12 in the Netherlands can request euthanasia you know a competent patient who's under 18 in Belgium can request euthanasia provided they have um, parental consent and things like that. So, that, that you know, in some done? ways, say again, sorry. Does that have to be a terminal? Do they have to prove how ill they are or is that just, uh, I need to end it? So in Belgium, I don't think that, um, um, so competence has to be required and it can't be for a psychiatric disorder which might be you know depression or you know something like that but there are increasing arguments mm. about um you, you know particularly in the netherlands about uh um about this whole threshold and where you know if, if it's purely about autonomy and the right self-governance then this threshold about adulthood and competency and you know the level of suffering or the kind of suffering it can't hold you know, I have a friend who um, wrote her dissertation, you know, at King's on um, a bill that was going through the, the Dutch Parliament on basically euthanasia for a completed life. In other words, you didn't have to be terminally ill. You didn't have to have anything necessarily wrong with you. All you had to do was feel that your life has reached um, its conclusion, even if, you know, you still biologically could last 20, 30 years. Um, you know, that those could be le legitimate grounds for euthanasia. Now, it's not legal itself, but it but it just shows you, you, you know, where this can go. And, and I know, like, a lot of sector ethicists hate slippery slope arguments, which is where, you know, where we kind of are at the minute. But but at the end of the day, there is evidence that um, some of these okay. things do end up on a slippery slope. So... Yeah, well, when, when there's clear evidence it's a slippery slope, it's pretty hard to deny it. So, you know, I think 10 years ago, that would have held more weight. You know, people have, you know, a lot of criticism of people saying it's a slippery slope. But when, when um, you know, when you keep hearing these these uh, advances and the, and the door just opening wider and wider, it's very hard to, to interpret that as anything but a slippery slope because this is exactly what we said. If you focus on individual autonomy and, that it, uh, and, and suffering... Um, the natural progression is for always humans to push, uh, you know, push that door further and further because they'll, they'll always be, well, okay, well, you know, uh, you're not quite there, but you're close. Okay, well, once you've accepted that and you're a little bit closer, it's like, well, there's these other situations, there's other persons in this situation and that's, that's also very, okay, well, that's allowed for that. And it, and it, it very quickly, um, you know, the goalposts change. Uh, well, not quickly, but I think... Um, you know, there's people with HIV diagnoses, uh, people with cancer, people who have gone, lost their sight, um, who have managed to get permission to to, to be euthanized. And um, I don't know. I think we would all find that pretty, pretty, pretty horrific. Um, so, what's the, what's the, how, how do, how do we deal with that? I mean, from a, from a, from a Christian perspective, because, um, yes. go on. sorry, just, just 
while you're asking that question, the, just linked in with a question. So I think where you're going is how do we respond? But there's a sort of just final logical conclusion of that is someone asked about Peter Singer's views on bioethics. And I think he's a, I think he's as far as you can go following down that slope. But there's nothing that just, there's nothing significant enough that distinguishes us between animals, any animal. So we might as well just treat our, if I've got that right. And, and that then, allows us basically to think well if they're suffering we should be humane in the sense that we're humane to to pets is that i might be caricaturing because i haven't read too much of his stuff but I, i'm interested in your the christian response to that extreme but also how how do we show human life has um has value when someone doesn't hold the, the same foundation as we do Sorry, I didn't well, mean to. Uh, <laughs> no, Dan, did you want to say something? No, no, you go for it. I can follow up. No, I mean, well, Peter Peter Singer is, you know, he's one of the most famous practical ethicists of, you know, in the last 30 years. But he does, you know, he's famous <laughs> or infamous in some circles because he, he does hold some extreme views. And again, it's it all comes back to this question of the value of life. So, you, you know, the... Um, whether that's at the beginning of life or at the end of life, um, many um, secular ethicists and Peter Singer especially would say that you know there is a particular threshold that you have to graduate to. There's there's certain criteria and certain capacities that you need to have in order to become a person. Right. Um, oh, and personhood is the real thing. So it's not it's not about being human. It's about being a person. It's not about, you know, being a human being. It's about having moral status. And you only have moral status if you're a person. So early embryos and things like that, um, they're very human, but they don't have moral status because, um, you know, according to Peter Singer's criteria, they're not persons. And and different ethicists land on different places. So Peter Singer would, would um, you know, when it comes to personism, he, he would sort of set the criteria probably... Um, in terms of sort of self-consciousness or self-awareness, which is actually, I mean, that's pretty late after birth, which is why I get in, you know, so much trouble at times because um, he has theoretically said that, you know, there's no, um, there's, if, if this is where personhood comes in, then there, there's no moral distinction between aborting um, a fetus that's in the womb and aborting, um, you know, a, a neonate in that sense. You know, because it doesn't, it still doesn't have personhood, and so in that sense, it doesn't have, um, you know, moral status. Now, obviously, most people would be horrified at that, and they certainly were, but um, but it just shows you where that logic gets. One of my associate professors at King's is a guy called John Harris, who wrote a book <laughs> on, um, you know, the value of life, and John Harris would say that, um, you know, he would define person as a creature capable of valuing its own existence. Um, and so if a person isn't capable of valuing their own existence, i.e., you know, again, I would imagine it would go right up to, you know, a neonate at the beginning of life or a dementia patient or somebody who doesn't have the cognitive ability to recognize and communicate their own value, then they don't have personhood. Yeah. Oh, and that, that's that's the sorry that that word communicate. I, I'm just trying to figure out how you 
how you even recognize if someone's self-aware if they can't communicate like <laughs> it's it seems mad to me some of the, the criteria that is set um but yeah uh, sorry i interrupted again yeah i mean there's hugely high thresholds but he would he would also then say you know if somebody wants to end their life by euthanasia because they don't value it then we don't do them a harm in killing them because they don't you know they're they're not they are a being who's capable of valuing their existence but they don't value it so we don't take from them anything that that they want or that they value so we don't harm them you know now that's I remember talking to him about this and saying, yeah, but, you know, what that doesn't seem to understand is that we're also, you know, in a social context, we're beings that cannot just sort of, um, you know, value ourselves, but we're also beings that can recognize value in other people. And is that of any moral significance? Because mm -hmm. obviously, you know, <laughs> the whole point of, you know, a really early, um, you know, a baby in the womb or a young baby or even somebody with dementia is, you know, we we recognize their value as a moral community, mm -hmm. even if they either don't have the capacity or find themselves in such a dark place that they don't recognize it themselves. And so we feel their loss, you know, if somebody you know, has the tragedy of a miscarriage or we lose someone who, who may have lost their cognitive faculties long ago because you know dementia processes on average eight years we feel that sense of loss and in so in a sense in some ways we have been harmed as a moral community even if that person can't recognize so i think you know this radical individualism that is at the heart of a lot of these ethics i think is is unrealistic and it's quite implausible um, because we're more interconnected as a people than we often like to think um, and you know, and so um, those those factors don't seem to come into play at any point when it comes to some of these other um, ethical positions. You know, it seems to be that the ultimate ethic is just sort of the self-made man self-determining their own de own decisions. But yeah. you know, no no one is an island. Yeah, John Locke said. He, um, I actually, I, I quite like reading Peter Singer. He's probably one of my, not favorite because I agree with his views, but one of my favorite, um, you know, secular ethicists to read because, um, because of how, how consistent he is. And, and I like that, especially as a Christian, he, um, he admits, you know, he identifies where there's, where there's borrowed capital from, from the Christian worldview. And so he's very clear about, you know, that, Actually, we're only on Western, at least definitely in the West, Western civilization, I'm sure most of the, the rest of the world as well. But uh, we only we're only uncomfortable with infanticide and things like that because of, of the Christian tradition. Um, and he's very clear about that. You know, if you, you know, go back to the uh, Romans, ancient Greeks, they'd have no concern about, um, you know, um, if you didn't want a, a, a female, new, you know, female newborn, you're just leaving that weed to abandon because they weren't they weren't they weren't as much use if you if you had a, a child with a disability it's horrible you know they would just leave them out they'd be abandoned or they'd throw them off a cliff you know these were the sort of views that that that, that, that they had that a lot of people had there was very little um you know moral value ascribed to to um to, to newborns and, and, and infants and um and i quite like that because he's just he's just brutally clear this is this is a a remnant of a christian uh, Christian ethical system that as secular people um, 
we don't have those premises and therefore we probably shouldn't have those conclusions as well and actually it, it is up for debate whether infanticide is permissible um and 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 the end of life stuff as well because it is it's deeply rooted in 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 christian anthropology uh in christian moral moral theology about you know the image of day you know that we have that that, that all humans have equal moral worth on the basis of being made in the image of god and that's something we will share equally because actually when, when you look at human beings um you know empirically we're clearly not equal yeah so gareth six foot four i'm six foot you're what six foot one phil so we're not we're not equally tall um we're um you know uh we're, we're, we're not the, the humans are clearly not equal you get people who are five foot people who are four foot people who are seven foot um you get people who are uh, more intelligent people who are uh, just kinder people you get uh, people have more athletic ability um so we're clear we're clearly not we're not equal. some people are abled some are yeah. uh, disabled so we're not we're not we're not equal in that sense but it's it's the it's the it's, it's the christian worldview that says no no you may not be um equal in function but you're equal in in worth and um and i think what's so interesting is someone like peter singer where i like him is that he he identifies those things whereas a lot of ethicists and a lot of secular people were very comfortable to um claim that christianity has had no influence on their moral views uh take certain assumptions off the, of the christian mm -hmm. moral, uh, moral system but negate the the foundations and those and those those premises because and i as the use that sometimes talking to students is 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 that we're, we're clearly not we're clearly not equal um from a secular system so why shouldn't we be treated unequally mm. in, in, in a way so it, it forces i think he, he he's good because he forces people to confront um those difficult difficult questions and i think um how that's helpful is actually look there's something about you 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 know that it's it's wrong to kill infants um for, for instance okay but what what system best what worldview best fits that moral conclusion of what you what you what you know to be true um and if 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 the secular moral system can't actually um, um doesn't follow from that system then maybe you need to to rethink the foundations of your kind of um you know moral outworking which is kind of where we're, we're at the the beginning of this conversation is that's that story so many christians are already at that conclusion without the basis but it'd seem many in the secular worldview are in, in the same position um trying to work that out and actually discarding christianity because they don't think it is part only just to pick up on something you said gareth about the importance of how interconnected we are it just sparked off a, a conversation i had recently which was claiming the narrative of evolution and society's need to survive to the to why morals exist in the first place and i i find again the use of narrative fascinating with books like sapiens and i'm not sure if you've come uh, read that it was very much here's a story of of where well, i'm going to get to this conclusion that we have a society with morality but here's this lovely evolutionary story to get there, which I found a little bit hard, hard, hard to take, <laughs> a bit of a stretch at times. But it's interesting that you note that actually the relational aspect gives worth to a person that I haven't really seen 
Well, and then we see in Peter Singer's, he's taken the worth is very, it's about the individual and their personhood, not about the inherent worth that society gives them. I just find that interesting that one will argue that it's the relational aspect that we're relational apes that have come up with morality, but we'll discard that relational aspect when it comes to decisions. And it's not, there's two different people. I'm kind of jumping conclusions here, but I just think that was an interesting point you made and just wanted to, to highlight it. Um, we talked talked a little bit about um, a response and, and a narrative, but I'm also aware that we've never asked you how long we should be going on with this conversation. So uh, I, I just want to check in before we go into any further. Like, how long got? if you're not careful, it'll be like eleven. I've been like, oh, I've been there for three hours. I only had an hour, guys. Sorry. How long have you, you got? asked my wife that question more than me? <laughs> I'm already in trouble. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so I can do uh, I can do another another fifteen minutes. Okay. Mostly because <laughs> I'm exhausted. But uh, no worries. But it's no, I mean it's 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 been a really good discussion. I think I mean the relational aspect is so important as well. I mean we said how Phil um uh, you know, a Christian ethics can't be disconnected from the Christian story and the person of God. But also inherent to that story is that, you know, we're part of a community. And I think, you know, as much as we can sort of deal with this um, in, you know, as kind of abstract ideas and philosophical things um, that kind of, you know, go go for the ivory towers. Um, you know, these are real, very real and very difficult decisions that, that people are making. And the challenges are um, are really, really difficult. This stuff is complex. Um, and I think part of the problem, certainly in, in the church, is that um, people are kind of forced into these decisions in the middle of the situation, as opposed, you know, people are often, whether it's in terms of like fertility treatment or something like that, or, you know, if somebody goes for fertility treatment and they're asked about genome sequencing and they discover that, you know, the embryos that they have have certain um, abnormalities or, you know, one has a, a third chromosome 21 and has Down syndrome and things like that. Or whether it's, again, you know, what do we do with a loved one or, or what does somebody do, you know, sort of at the end of their life. Most of us don't think about a lot of the stuff until we actually find ourselves in the situation. And that's part of the problem. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, one of, you know, what do we do, I guess, is, is the question. I think one of the things that we have to do is start talking about this. I think, you know, we need to sort of, as much as possible, depoliticize a lot of these things um, and take them out of the, the sort of culture war space and really begin to reflect on them, both in terms of, you know, how they make sense to us as individual Christians, but also, you know, how we may help it make sense to the world that's watching on. And I think, you know, in some ways, as much as I think it would be, it would be, you know, a, a tragedy. In some ways, you know, if euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide was um, to be legalized in this country, you know, I, I think it may present the church with a real opportunity about people who could die but don't need to die. Um, you know, people who face these kinds of issues and have the opportunity of ending their life or protecting their dignity um, as they define that by, you know, euthanasia or, or 
what would it be for you know a community of people to exist who actually do things differently and that in a sense to be part of our public witness you know and i think so there has to be like a whole infrastructure created around what make our what makes our ethics plausible particularly in a in a contested space you know there's no point again we're talking about Haravas or remember him saying you know there's no there's no point having a particular ethic on abortion if the church isn't prepared to care for women with pregnancy crises or care for unwanted children and mm -hmm. um, you know we have to be able to be prepared to present the church as a plausibility space for that particular ethic, as opposed to just tell people what to do, but not give them any help in how to live it out. And similar with um, the end of life stuff, you know, we have to be talking about these particular issues. We have to be exploring what is what does Christian dying look like? You know, not just we have a lot of, um, you know, we we have a lot to say about life after death and Christian hope, you know, post mortem and things like that. But actually, there's a rich history in Christian theology of, um, you know, helping people to die well and respecting some of um, the the challenges that people face at the end of their life. That whole Christian ars moriendi tradition, you know, that I think we're beginning to recapture. I think as a society, we're beginning, particularly in terms of the end of life stuff, we're beginning to talk about death more. Um, and there's a lot of sort of popular level books that are now being written about sort of end of life experience. Yeah. And I think that's healthy. But I think we as the church really need to think about how do we help our people to die well? And how is that a Christian ethic? So that, you know, again, quoting Harvest, didn't, didn't expect to be quoting so much tonight. But <laughs> so good. I love I what he enough. says where, well, he, he one of his one of the lines that I that I love is he says that the church doesn't just have a social ethic it is a social ethic yeah. in terms of how it lives out its life and how it works out these ethics in its everyday rhythms and decision making um, and enables people to live this way as opposed to just again just tell them how to behave and expect them to do it and then condemn them when they don't yeah. you know so that's you know we got to be interconnected in that sense as well, helping each other reflect, work work out what this looks like, being creative, um, so that so that that we know how to do this stuff well, mm. and and do it publicly, yeah, as well, so that the church can see an alternative story, um, and believe that you know for people made in the image of God that will connect with not just a Christian vision, but the most humanitarian moral vision that is on offer in the world. Mm. Yeah. Uh, that's a fairly natural place to go to segue into our, our last question, I guess, but there's a really important aspect to think through in, I mean, in the ancient world, you'd, you'd know when someone has committed infant infanticide, because from what I, here because i'm not a historian they would literally be on the street or cast out and you could pick up a child and therefore take care of it uh, that if 
we, we don't have it that openly like it's mm. it's been shifted to a point of behind closed doors uh, in a closed off space that even uh praying outside of it might get you into trouble so i guess the create as you say the creativity needed for the church to to live out a model where someone who knows that they've done something wrong will still be welcomed and loved and cared for and and walking that journey towards the cross uh together and i think the church has been so vocal about what is wrong in society they've not we've not modeled how to love despite that brokenness and i, I think that's a, a real important uh place to go yeah. uh, bef before we go into the last question dan do you, do you have any other thoughts no 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 it's uh, it's good i've loved chatting uh chatting to gareth uh, and it's um i wanted to get on to, to we'll have to get you back to talk about um moral enhancement and the christian mm. kind of view of moral enhancement because i've never actually it'd be nice to, i don't know if i've ever spoken to another christian about moral enhancement and the kind of issues that that's going to raise in the future about uh, you know how are we going to end up in this sort of tier even more of a tiered society where we've got you know people who've been physically cognitively morally enhanced and christians are saying no i'm not we're not going to do that and we're kind of like uh i yeah. don't know it'd be, it'd be interesting the rich and the poor and the implications for for that so maybe we we'll have to come uh, get you back uh, another time you're happy to just talk about and we'll keep it to like an hour this time oh it's 10 to 10 yeah. I think gareth probably was only meant to stay for an hour uh, um yeah so maybe we just do like an hour of talking about moral enhancement and how that fits into the the, the christian yeah. worldview and the, the challenges that's going to bring with us um, um, you know for, in, in the future i think will be really interesting yeah i mean i i i wrote my dissertation for kings um on the whole question of human enhancement mm. and genome editing and some of you know the the argument that this is a new eugenics um yeah. but yeah i mean i think i would i would need some form of human enhancement in order to start talking about that tonight <laughs> <laughs> you and me both that's, and that's why that's why we'll do we'll do it for a separate a separate time. yeah yeah um let's do this bit in but you make i mean phil you made a very important point just about like I think we need to realize people make ethical decisions based on the options that they think they have, mm. you know, and when people think that they're, that they're only a limited set of options, you know, somebody in a, in a pregnancy crisis or something like that finds themselves in a, you know, particular set of options and no like genetic counseling and, um, you know, it's meant to be non-directive, but there are all kinds of ways in which, you know, they can be subtly directive. And a lot of the language that's used and how these things are communicated are very very important they have framing effects mm -hmm. um about you know and then people make decisions based on that and i just i just wonder if the church could become a space where we offer an alternative option and it's real and people know about it what would that what would that mean mm -hmm. for the decisions that people make it may well mean that they don't have to make the decision that they otherwise thought they would have mm -hmm. Um, but it really takes the church, as, as you say, to step up and take the stuff seriously and do exactly what Phil was talking about, sacrifice. We have to sacrifice, you know, our own comforts. We have to sacrifice our own sort of the idolization of sort of the model family and even in a sense, the nuclear family and realize that the primary family in the New Testament is the church itself, not the nuclear family. And what does that look like in terms of how we care? For the vulnerable and the weak and the disabled um 
and those who don't qualify for personhood according to some of these other thresholds but but we can recognize it and we can award value mm. because we have a basis for doing so because god has done exactly that for us mm. you know through the person of jesus i mean there's everything in us to disqualify us in terms of acceptance with god and yet god came to us and became human what <laughs> what more um value could be given to human life than for god to mm. become human himself Mm. But also beyond that, to accept us and to engage us and invite us into um, relationship with him. Um, you know, when when we were without strength, as the New Testament puts it, mm. and that gives us a basis for caring and loving and engaging with those at the beginning of life, you know, in between, or certainly at the end of life, who are without strength. Yeah. Um, because we do not engage with them purely on the basis of their utility or competency or anything else, yeah. but simply because of who they are. You know, so. Well, just, well, just yeah. Oh, sorry, Dan. I was going to say we're going to have our, our last two yeah, quick yeah, questions, yeah. and then we're going to let you let you go. Yeah, you go. Uh, yeah. We're feeling especially bad now. Um, <laughs> sorry to your wife. Yeah. Um, the so if you could just say maybe two or three people um that christians might not know about um that you that you think they should look into and listen to uh, and and maybe just a couple of books that you think people listening maybe especially related to this um you know some of the the themes that we've we've kind of touched on today um that people might want to read yeah i mean uh, what so one of the most um helpful christian writers on some of these issues that i find is john wyatt so um he's a um he's a clinician actually himself more than more than an ethicist but he's written a great book called um matters of life and death it's actually i think it's on my shelf somewhere yeah um and uh yeah john john's great uh very very helpful he's written a number so matters of life and death is kind of his his first book that kind of covers um, the beginning of life, the end of life, but he's also written more specific books on um, sort of end of life and things like that. So um, he, he would be great. Um, other thinkers, I guess, might be helpful. Um, yeah, I mean, I always like, um, I really enjoyed Nigel Bigger's book on this. It's called Aiming to Kill. I think he takes a really healthy approach um to to this question it's a little bit older now um it's, it's about 20 years old but um his book is 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 really helpful and he's um to the head of the faculty that i'm part of um at oxford as well he's a top dog. um mm -hmm. yeah he's a re really really great thinker um and um and, and the other thing's not necessarily a book but particularly in terms of this like practical aspect of of end of life how do we sort of help people so my own supervisor um is is joanna collicut mcgrath who um and she a few years ago for the anglican church she um began um a project that kind of helps people to navigate through um sort of end of life from a christian perspective so you, you know i'm sure you guys have heard of like death cafes and things like that where people come together and they have tea and cake and they talk about end of life it's similar that that was kind of um part of the inspiration for it but she's now um 
develop some resources where people can do that in a Christian context and reflect on some of that. So um, I think the website is deathandlifeproject.com. I can certainly find it out. Um, we can Google that. That's you, fine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no gonna, have you come across um, Gilbert Maylander, Mylander, um, the yeah. Lutheran yeah. bioethicist? I think he, his, his book I read sort of several years ago as an introduction to, to Christian bioethics um yeah. is, is 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 a is a great book and i think there's another introduction to christian bioethics by mm -hmm. agnetta sutton as well she was my dissertation supervisor when i did my masters um she's yeah. roman catholic but they're 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 the two kind of books of christian bioethics i always recommend people read i think gilbert mylander is just a, a new edition's just come out this year or yeah. last year as well which uh you know, anyone yeah. listening I, I would recommend uh, get hold of that as well Cool. One other writer in this, and he does, so he does a lot of the human enhancement stuff as well. So we'll, if we do this again, I'm mm -hmm. sure I'll, I'll quote him. But Leon Cass is, mm -hmm. um, so he's, he's um, an American uh, writer, uh, and he's written a book called Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Dignity. And there's a lot of that is the sort of biotechnology stuff, but there's also sort of issues on end of life at the end of it. And Hmm. Um, I really, really enjoy his writing. So he's not a Christian. I think he's no. got a, a Jewish background. Jewish, yeah. um, but uh, he also writes an amazing commentary on Genesis as well, um, and brings some of these some of these things to play awesome. in Genesis. So, yeah, amazing. Well, Gareth, it's been a bit more epic than we anticipated. <laughs> but we uh, just thank right. you so much for taking <laughs> the time. Um, we would love to have you back and talk about that. I mean, yeah, hu human enhancement sounds sounds like a, a big topic. I want to do that, <laughs> do that well. Um, thank you for all those resources as well. We'll, we'll sign off here and let you go to your family or to your bed or both. Um, but those of you who have been listening, thank you so much. Thanks to, uh, I can't remember the name of the commenter who asked us about divine hiddenness. Uh, so you say, Thank you for the question and I uh, hope our answers helped. And uh, also to London Theist and the programmer, our new mods on the chat, just uh, they can help <laughs> weed out any anyone if need be. Um, but just thanks for listening. If you're on a podcast, thank you uh, for subscribing and I um, hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you've learned. Feel free to comment on any of our social media and we'll try and get back to you and, and uh, interact with you. Um, but also, if it's if it is good, please feel free to share it. And um, if it's really good and you want to support this and get us off Zoom and onto one of these other streaming tools that are good, um, well, we need some finance, and you can find that on Patreon. Um, but that's all, that's up to you. We enjoy doing this, whether we get paid or not. So, um, again, Gareth, thank you, Dan. Cheers. I'll uh, I'll click end stream. Are you Thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show if you like what you hear please do give us a subscribe on youtube or follow us on any of the social media out there and give us feedback get in touch let us know what you think if you really enjoyed the content and want to support it find us on patreon.com <laughs>